Bible, I pray that you do because you're at home, open it up to the book of John. And you know that we've been going through the book of John and there's nothing better than to focus on the firm anchor that we have in the gospel, in God's word. If everything around us is very uncertain and is falling apart, crumbling, we can rest assured that God's word is strong and will remain effective even in the midst of turmoil. So we will invest our time in God's word and we'll keep going and we're just going to keep preaching the gospel and preaching the word of God even at your home. So get used to that, that we're going to focus on God's word now more than ever and get ready because we're going to, especially today, we will go through a biblical theology of salvation. So that really means that we're going to be looking at a lot of Bible scriptures. So have, have one of your secretaries at home, one of your kids, appoint them as a secretary and tell them to write down all the verses. You look them up in your Bible and, and just get ready to, to learn and read scripture today more than ever. In John chapter 3, We've been going through verses 1 through 15 for the past four weeks. This is our fourth series in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And we've divided that section in two. In the beginning, first eight verses, and now we're diving into the, the last verses, 9 through 15. And, and I want to just sum up what it means that what, everything that we spoke about between verses 1 through 8 and... And really bring the attention to Christ's words at the end of verse 15. If you remember what we've been talking about, we've been talking about this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Jesus has spoken and, and, and has given Nicodemus clear instruction on, in Nicodemus' case, how to see the kingdom. What Jesus is really speaking about is how to be saved, what salvation means, and who does the saving. So in verses 1 through 8, we, don't, we won't have to read through it, but in verses 1 through 8, the, the focal point to summarize the, the attention that Christ gives in his words, he, he's bringing and driving home this main factor. One must be born from above. One must be born, in common terms, terms, again, a rebirth, a regeneration. And Jesus is stressing this in Nicodemus' life because he sees and he has seen the development of a religious spirit amongst the nation of Israel, especially from one of Israel's key leaders. And so what Jesus is really pointing everyone to at this moment, not just Nicodemus, is the concept of salvation or an external salvation. Because in verses 3, in verses 5, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus uses this word or this phrase, you must be born from above, in the passive verb. It's a passive verb voice. What does a passive verb mean? It means that the action applied to the subject is, that the subject is passive in that action. In common terms or layman's terms, it's you don't do anything upon that action. The action is done upon you. In this case, what Jesus is saying, the only way you can be born again, the only way you can be born from above is by an external salvation. Someone or something has to save you and you do nothing about it in a sense. This something or someone... Christ points immediately to heaven. 
And Nicodemus fully understands what heaven has and what heaven entails. It's God who does the saving. It's God who does the rescuing. It's God who identifies the need of his people, the needs of sinners, and does salvation. Salvation always lies in the hands of God. Friends, even in this moment, I know we've been talking about Nicodemus and first century Judaism. But even in this moment, 2020, salvation belongs to God. We don't know when we're going to get out of this dilemma as far as COVID goes. We don't know when the government's going to let us go free. We don't know if we're going to be enclosed another year. We just don't know. However, we can be confident that salvation still belongs to the Lord. And you see, this isn't a new concept. Jesus isn't speaking about a new concept in a sense. He isn't speaking about a foreign concept to Nicodemus, especially Nicodemus being a a Pharisee and, and, and part of the Sanhedrin. It's not a foreign concept because the Old Testament carries this theme consistently. The Old Testament speaks on this external salvation time and time again, especially in the Psalter. If you look at Psalm chapter 3 verse 8, The opening phrase in Psalm chapter 3 verse 8 is salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Psalm chapter 37 verses 39 says the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. Once again, Psalm chapter 62 verse 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence from him comes my salvation. It's an external salvation in the Old Testament. This is the theme. Jonah, the famous minor prophet that slept in the stomach or in the belly of the fish towards the end of his uh, his experience in chapter 2 verse 9, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. What the Old Testament is pointing us to is an upward experience. That's why Jesus says in verses 3, 5, 7, and 8 of chapter 3, you must be born from above. It is an external experience that doesn't come from below but comes from above in a sense where everyone understood God abided and God was from. So what he is saying in in these introductory verses is that external salvation will always lie in the hands of God and there must be an identification of those who need to be saved. If if we were to ask around at this very moment, how many of us would want to be rescued from this dilemma? A lot of us would say, yes, get us out of this. We need a vaccine or we need something to combat this virus that's going around. There is a need for salvation. The problem is when people fail to identify that they need salvation from their sin. And so that's what Nicodemus was lacking, and that's what Jesus Christ points out. You must be born from above in order to see the kingdom of God. And once again, the the Psalms are clear on this. Some of the minor prophets are clear on this, but this also lies in Israel's history. Israel, as the chosen people of God, 
as people that were elected by God and were saved by God, this is the theme that we see time and time again in the beginning. So I want you to open up your Bible now to the Old Testament. And we're going to be jumping around a little bit so that you can get familiar with these passages of Scripture and understand Israel's story and understand when God chooses people, he is in charge of their lives. When God elects, when God brings people in, he is in charge. Even in the midst of turmoil, even in the midst of struggle, even when everything seems to be going wrong. In Israel's history, this is clearly evident that they reflected a complete need of salvation time and time again. And this need showed us that they were unable. They had an inability to save themselves and therefore an external salvation was needed. The story of Israel brings us to the attention of a God who chooses and a God who saves. Remember, we're putting this in context of one of the most famous verses or the, arguably, the most famous verse in the Bible. Next week, perhaps, we will speak on John 3.16. If we could get through this section today, we will speak on John 3.16. And the most famous uh, verse that everyone knows because it talks about God's love in salvation. So setting up this context is very important. In the Old Testament, we understand that God chooses and God saves. It's the theme of the Old Testament. Can God save? The Old Testament writers would say yes. Can or does God save? The Old Testament writers would say yes. Will God save is what most of the Old Testament writers struggled with. Will God do the saving? The New Testament will be clear on that as well. Will God save his people? The answer still remains yes. From what becomes the subject of our conversation? In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 4, I'll read with you. And I hope and I pray that we have the scripture before you if you haven't found it yet. But we might put it next to you in, on, on the online image. In chapter 4, verse 35 the word of God says, to you it was shown that you might know the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power driving out before you the nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the lord is god in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other what God is saying again, and this is Deuteronomy, this is the second law, this is generations after the initial salvation of Egypt and Israel. He's reminding them what God has done and who he did it for. He says he loved their fathers, he loved Israel. 
He loved them and therefore he delivered them. He saved them. Now we'll look at why. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, go, go with me a little bit further down. In chapter 7, verses 6 and on, the word of God says, For you are a people holy to your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's verse 6. You are a chosen people for his treasured possession. Israel. God chooses them for his treasured possession. Now verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In God's choosing, God saves. It, it's, it's unfair for us to God, call God unfair when we see that there was other nations around that God didn't choose, but he chose Israel. And once again, it's a clarifying statement, a sobering statement to understand that God chose Israel not because they were wealthy, not because they were plentiful, not because they were big and vast and, and mighty and they had a big army with them, not because anything of them was of any significance. See what I'm saying? What, we, what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus? There's nothing really in you or about you that is worthy of salvation. Other than the fact that God is faithful to his promise. And so in verse 8, God clarifies this. He loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God is faithful to his word. And the reason he will save them time and time again is because he remains faithful and trustworthy to accomplish his saving acts. And there's nothing that Israel did or could have done to call his attention. If you want to keep going, go with me to First Chronicles. I've warned you that we're going to be reading scripture a lot. If your kids are... Wondering what you're doing with the Bible. Now is a good time to say, hey, no, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is Sunday morning. This is time for worship. It's good for them to see you with the Bible. First Chronicles chapter 16, verses 19 and on. This is the, in the middle of a salvation psalm in First Chronicles. This is David's song of thanksgiving. And in the middle of this song, verses... 19 and on, David says this, When you were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth tell of his salvation from day to day. 
Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works amongst all the peoples. For great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all the gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Did you hear that? David reminds the people why they were saved. David reminds the people that they were few in numbers. That they were sojourners, wandering from here and there, from one kingdom to another people. And they were guided by the protection of God. And so the chosen people must respond in verse 23, sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day. Once again, salvation belongs to the Lord. And there was nothing that Israel could have done to call for that. Yet, they were chosen. They were uh, God's chosen possession, treasured possession. They merited it not on their own strength, but on the love that came from above And because of that, they were watched, they were protected, and God deserves all the glory in this. Turn your Bible to the book of Psalm. I pray that you could find these verses quickly. Psalm chapter 44. Look what what it says, verse 1. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. Look at verse 3. For not by their own sword... Did they win the land? Nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. It's very clear here that salvation didn't rest in the power of the people's might. As a matter of fact, how feeble and how, how, how insignificant our arm of strength would look compared to the arm of our God. Especially when the Hebrew writers say the right hand of the Lord. That's talking about the power of God. That's a representation of power compared to our own strength. The psalmist calls out this the, this, re, uh, this memory to the people of Israel and saying, you guys didn't do anything, but God was with you. And God, he's the one who brought you to salvation. Now, in the context of the Old Testament, it, it, it is always a salvation out of oppression, a salvation out of battle, a salvation because the foes or the enemies are at attack. But it is in the New Testament that the Lord will bring us out of a different type of slavery. 
It isn't a slavery by physical nation or by a physical kingdom. But he will bring us out of a slavery of sin. And that, again, my friends, is what he is stressing with Nicodemus. And again, Nicodemus is thinking of an earthly kingdom. And Jesus is like, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not here to fight. There will be a moment of battle, but it isn't now. For the moment, it is salvation of our iniquities, of our transgressions, of our sin. The prophets are clear on this too. Open your Bible to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 63. We'll read from verse 7 and on. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us. And the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. He was their redeemer. He was their savior. It was God all along. And it will be God all along. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If you aren't convinced, Ezekiel puts this in a future perspective as well. Chapter 36 of Ezekiel, verse 17 and on. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanliness of a woman in menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the, through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said, said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had gone out of the, his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, verse 22 says, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. This again brings in context, lives of destructions, living under the oppression of their own sin. They're the ones that transgressed. They're the ones that faded away. They're the ones that messed up. And because of that, God brings his wrath upon them, but then God saves them. 
See, friends, God oppresses, God brings his wrath, but God also saves. And he does so not only because of his pity, as Ezekiel would say, or Isaiah, but because he is faithful to his holy name. He wants to restore the honor of his name. The shame that the people of God bring to the name of God will be restored and we will be saved because God will vindicate his holiness before our eyes. Friends, this is pointing us to the future. This is pointing us to a day of salvation that rests not in our ability or power, but in God and for his glory and for his namesake and by his love for a people that cannot save themselves, for a people that are under oppression, for a people that are living in sin and blaspheming the name of God. God seeks to save. God seeks to bring restoration. And so this conversation of Nicodemus becomes more evident why the stress of needing to be born from above. And while the first eight verses set this up, look at the response of Nicodemus in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? You know, after going through this type of indirect communication with Jesus, but Jesus knowing full well the implications of his statement in the life of Nicodemus, Nicodemus doesn't understand the concept of external salvation because salvation was always within their reach. Salvation was always something they could accomplish on their own. So this external salvation was very foreign. It could not be grasped by a person like Nicodemus who answers the call of Jesus. How can these things be? And so between verses 10 and 15 of chapter 3, we're back in John now. Jesus replies to Nicodemus sternly, emphatically, but ultimately leaves the conversation to focus on everyone's needs, including our own. Even today, this applies to us. Between verses 10 and 12, Jesus initiates this, uh, th this response to Nicodemus in disbelief. He calls him a teacher with question marks. Look at verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus is shocked. Although Jesus knew, but Jesus is getting Nicodemus to be shocked at his ignorance. Aren't you supposed to be teaching the people these very things? Aren't you aware of the law? Friends, what did we just read? We read verse after verse in the Old Testament. This is what Nicodemus was an expert at. And now the fulfillment of that scripture is standing straight in his face. Staring him dead in the eye, and he's still saying, I don't understand. Jesus calls him a teacher? Really? Remember what he 
remember the words of Nicodemus in the beginning of chapter 3? Oh, you're a teacher. Oh, good teacher. He was trying to compare Jesus to him. And Jesus was like, oh, friend, you're not a teacher. You don't know. You have no understanding, even though you should. In verse 11 and 12, it's basically a condensation of not knowing, not being able to see, and not being able to receive, and not being able to believe. 11 and 12 bring all these negative concepts to the forefront of what it means to live separate from God, dead in our sin. Basically, the spiritual state of Nicodemus' life reflects the entire spiritual state of all of Israel and of all the people at that very moment. When Jesus says, you, in verse 12, 11 and 12, if you go with me there, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? When Jesus says you, it's changed from a singular pronoun to a plural pronoun. In the beginning of the verse of, of chapter 3, it's a single you speaking directly to Nicodemus. Now this, this you has been plural and now he's not only speaking to Nicodemus, but he's speaking to a vast number of people, including Nicodemus all the people that were with Nicodemus and his Pharisees and all the people of religious law and all the people that were there and all the people now. You is what Jesus is reaching for now. To sum it up, the state of Nicodemus not only reflects the spiritual state of everyone at that moment, but it reflects the spiritual state of many of us now. In common terms, we are ignorant, blind, rejectors of truth, and faithless. That's the spiritual state. That's where we are, separate from God, separate from Jesus. And that's why many of us stand before Jesus and say, I don't get it. I don't understand. I mean, I don't know why there's only one way to salvation. I don't know why church is so important. I don't know why we have to pick up a book that was written thousands of years ago and believe it. I don't know why we have to live our lives based off the authority of a book that was written by mere man. I don't get all of this faith stuff. Why can't we just be good people and all get along and give each other hugs and kisses when the coronavirus is done and, and just move forward? Why? Well, friends, because... Within our nature lies this deadly disease called sin. And the goodness of us will never be able to eradicate it. And so Jesus calls for salvation. And at the moment, Nicodemus doesn't understand. This gives us a little bit of hope for all of those who love to evangelize and speak to people about Christ and speak to people about God and, and the cross and some people just reject it. Some people just don't get it. Paul experiences this a lot in the New Testament. So I'm going to jump over to the New Testament now and read some scripture from New Testament so we could bring kind of a balance to everything that we've been learning. But Jesus at the end of verse 15 will set up the means of salvation. In verse 15 and 14 and 15, Jesus will set up the cross. And so... Paul, seeing this 20, 15 to 20 years later, has the cross in perspective. Go with me to 1 Corinthians. 
And in 1 Corinthians, the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians has got to be one of our, our favorite chapters in 1 Corinthians. And favorite sections. And he says this in verse 18 of chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the sermon of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks demand seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. God points to this foolishness and says that will be the means of salvation because even in the foolishness of God, it's wiser than the wisest man or the wisest philosophy on earth. What Paul sees is that the preaching of the gospel will always be foolish because it has to deal with a cross and it deals with someone that is dying on that cross for the cause of our sin. Cross is foolishness in verse 18. In verse 20 to 21, it, it doesn't rely on the human wisdom or capability to understand this. There's no need of signs or a philosophy as the Greeks and the Jews sought for in verse 22. In verse 23, salvation will come eventually through the preaching of the word of God. And what will be preached? Christ and him crucified, and that will be considered foolishness. And it is. For many people, it will always be foolishness. But for those who are being saved, it is power. Go to chapter 2. Paul reiterates this again in chapter 2, opening verses. And I, when, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Verse 6, yet among the mature we do not impart wisdom, although it is not wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret, a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for the glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord God. Go with me to verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Go, to, go with me to verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And in verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, because they are spiritually discerned. Friends, Paul is very emphatic, and he is stressing this point continuously. Wisdom does not save us. Philosophy 
does not save us. And everyone has a, a general sense of philosophy in their lives. It is not the wisdom of this world that will bring salvation, but it is the foolishness of the cross that will bring many to salvation. Go to 2 Corinthians. I'm going to use every minute of this broadcast or of this online live experience. I'm going to get you angry at the fact that you've had to read your Bible because you've been probably watching Netflix for far too many hours. So I'm glad that, you're, that I'm forcing you to read your scripture. In chapter 2, verses 14, Paul says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, that through, that through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now pay attention. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Verse 16. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for all these things? The answer is our God, Christ Jesus. Aroma of life and aroma of death. The message that the Christian carries is life and death. And some reject it. And to those who reject, it is death. Chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Verse 1, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake, for God, who said, light, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing. The gospel also has shown us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is who we worship, even in dark hours like today. It's the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, this message isn't a wise message. It isn't a eloquent message. It is the message of the cross. And that is what Jesus was pointing Nicodemus to, though he could not understand at that very moment. But that's why in verse 13, if you go back to John chapter 3, verse 13 speaks about this concept of ascending and descending. In a sense, what, 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 what Christ, what Jesus is saying is no human can reveal this to you. No person with human limitations can give you this gospel because no one has come from heaven other than Christ. 
That's why the proverb, the famous proverb in Proverb 30 verse 4 says, Who has gone up to heaven and come down, has gathered the wind in his hands, who has bound up the waters in the cloak, who has established the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is the name of his son, if you know? No one other than Jesus Christ. So this message of ascending and descending is flat out in the face of of, of human pride and human intellect. We cannot fathom or make up a way to save ourselves from this world. Friends, if you look around us, we can't even save ourselves now. There's thousands of people dying all over the world. We can't save ourselves. And this message is not only a secret message uh, and, and it's only given to a, a certain people. It's given to everyone freely. See, there was many modern evangelists that have come up in the last centuries. Joseph Smith of the Mormons. Charles Taze Russell of the Jehovah Witnesses. Mary Baker Eddy of Christian Science. And L. Ron Hubbard of Scientology. All of these people claimed a secret message that only they could reveal. Jesus Christ has revealed the secret message to everyone. It's a spiritual message of salvation to all who can hear it. And those who reject it, it is an aroma. It is a gospel of death. This is for everyone. And finally, Jesus points at the end of this passage, points us to the means of salvation. In verse 14 and 15, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's why we read Numbers chapter 21. Everyone who was bitten by the snake, they looked up to the snake on the stick and they were saved from their illness. In this sense, everyone who looks at Christ will be saved of their disease of death, which is sin. Once again, this points us to Jesus being better sacrifice, a better Moses. Everyone who looks upon Jesus will receive eternal salvation, eternal life with him. This is a triumphal expression in the gospel of John. This isn't just a humiliation of Christ as the other synoptics would say, which is part of it. But John clarifies this statement and Jesus brings this all to conclusion and saying this is the glorious expression of Jesus Christ on the cross. As the prophet Isaiah would say, my servant will be successful and he will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Exalted. This passage is the, the forerunner of the other two passages in John, in John chapter 8 and in John chapter 12, where he speaks about being lifted up. And in this being lifted up on the cross is the means and the way to salvation. To believe this is to gain eternal life. You identify the plan of salvation that God has placed before us in sending his son. Jesus poured God's wrath upon himself and therefore saved us from his wrath and has given us eternal life. Those who reject this will also gain eternal life in the presence of God. But under his wrath. Because either Jesus appeases God's wrath, or we will 
in hell. Friends, run to Jesus for salvation. He is the only means to salvation today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your plan. And thank you for Jesus Christ. And thank you for saving us. Father, we rest assured and our hope is in you. That we can run to you for salvation and look upon the cross as the means of our salvation. Place our trust in you and know that you have everything under control. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.